We've been studying Colossians 3, verses 16 through 17, and yet the title, as you can see, is Celebrate the Love of God. And if you are paying attention through the reading of verses 16 and 17, the love of God really isn't mentioned, at least explicitly. How can we talk about God's love from a text like this? That's the kind of question you should be asking when someone preaches to you. Further, how can we talk about the love of God, stated explicitly that way, from Colossians at all? His love is not, technically speaking, explicitly mentioned. The word, at least in the ESV, love, is used five times in the letter, and each of them are talking about our love for one another. And that could be a sermon unto itself of why that's the case. But consider this. How can we talk about the gospel or any aspect of the Christian life without mentioning the love of God? The only place, really, where we get a direct, at least an allusion to the love of God is in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's almost the side comment. It's almost like Paul throws it in there as he's writing about something else, and then just as a parenthesis, he says, holy and beloved. And that's an important text. We'll actually get to it. That'll be the final text that we talk about. But it's nothing like we see in Ephesians, a letter that was written at the same time, probably even from the same jail cell to the Ephesian church. The love of God is just plastered all over the pages, stated in that way. Did Paul forget something so important? What makes Colossians... And Paul's strategy in writing to that church so apparently different. And here's the point, and I hope you can see this, that the emphasis of Colossians is on the objective realities of what God has done. What He has done. His actions, therefore, are a demonstration of His love. And this objective showing or manifestation of his love is the point of much of what we find in Colossians. And I think when we're reading verses 16 and 17, he says this. Look closely at it. At the end of verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's not saying just just be sure whatever you do, just, just offer an occasional thank you to God. No, I woke up this morning. Thank you. Father, that's not what he's saying. He is alluding to everything he's already said about what God has done in the person of Jesus and saying, you should be thankful all the time because of those objective realities. It's not just an emotional thing that God has towards you in Christ. He has done something that's radically changed your situation. So, we will spend the rest of our time looking at the love of the Father specifically. We are celebrating the love of God, so this isn't a love that the Father Himself only has. But it's important that I think we understand the love of the Father. We talk about the love of Jesus, 
the Holy Spirit works in us to share the love of God and receive the love of God. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But I think in our minds, sometimes we can neglect the reality of the love of the Father. It's as Jesus says, the Father himself loves you. And we need to stand in awe of that love. And when you begin to understand the majesty, the power, the scope, the depth of the love of the Father, it changes just so very much. And that's what I think he's alluding to in verse 17. How we can give thanks to the Father always, regardless of what's going on in our lives, is because we know and we have seen in his work in the person of Jesus his love for us. So let's look at three observations from Colossians. We'll spend a little bit of time in one text from each chapter of chapters 1 through 3. We'll go back to a text that we talked about for a little bit last week and investigate it from a different angle. So we're kind of dropping down. Last week was a you know 30,000 foot perspective of Colossians and now we're zooming in on a few key spots. Look at Turn to chapter 1 and just kind of hold your place at verse 15. But let me ask you a question before we get to it. What is real love? How would you answer that question? Oxford defines it this way, an intense feeling of deep affection. Or the great philosopher John Lennon, love is the answer. And you know that for sure. Love is a flower, and you've got to let it grow. What's real love? It's none of those things. No, put very simply, real and true love is what God has done. Okay? Let's read it in verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, God in his love is not feeling something intensely and uncontrollably that makes him do things. Because then love would be a stronger principle than God himself. No, God loves himself, he loves us, and he loves the Son. All in one central commitment, one sheer act of his will to make Christ preeminent in all things. When you read a statement like that, that he might be preeminent in everything... Do you taste and smell and revel in the love of God for you when you read statements like that? Understand the point. The most loving thing that God has ever done and will ever do for anyone in all of the universe is to make Christ preeminent in all things. 
That's the most loving thing conceivable for him to do. There is no alternate universe in which he could do anything more loving than to make Christ preeminent. Dear Christian, the Father himself loves you. From before all time. And what he has done because of his eternal and unchangeable commitment to love you is to make everything not about you, but about Christ. The love of God is fully seen and made known and expressed in what he has done and will do in Christ with the specific aim of glorifying him. You will never come to a place of freedom and rest in the love of God until you embrace this. That the most loving thing He has done is to exalt Jesus. You will never come to full confidence in the Word of God itself until you can see this vision of God's love as beautiful. If you look at your circumstances, you will begin to doubt the love of God. Guarantee it. If you look at your feelings and how loved you feel, you will not find peace and you will not rest in the truth of his love for you. If you think of his love, of his love as sentimentality or a feeling within him, that can't help you when you're really going through it. What does that matter to you if you're suffering profoundly and someone just says, well, God feels love for you. That, that's a very weak sham of a definition of love. No one has ever seen God. He's up in heaven. He's a spirit. He has not a body like men. So what does it mean to me when I'm really going through it if God has these feelings in his heart somewhere? No. We must look to the objective reality of what God the Father has done to make Christ preeminent. And then we can know for certain how much He loves us. Why, you might ask, and this is a very good question, why is making everything about Jesus Christ and exalting Him to the place of preeminence the very best and most loving thing that the Father can do? That seems an odd claim, preacher. There are just so many reasons, but I will give you one from this very text. You can see it in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. So, He is the image of God. We are created in His image. You were created. The most basic and fundamental reason for the existence of the human race as people made in the image of God is to know, delight in, and glorify none other than Jesus Christ Himself. That's why you exist. So if you were made to do that very thing, then what's the most loving thing that the Father could ever do for you? To do the very thing that your soul was created to delight in and to feast on forever. This is how Jesus says it in John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. Before the foundation of the world. Fish swim, dogs bark, horses run, guns shoot, cars race, and humans are made to delight in the glory of the person of Jesus. That's how and why we were made. That is our end. That is our purpose. 
I want you to run out of words. I want you to be stunned and to be left stammering because of the magnitude of the unfathomable depth of the power and glory of the love of God. So to summarize this first point from verses 15 through 20, primarily verses 15 and 18, the love of the Father redefines what real love is. Because He loves us, He does the very best thing possible for us. He exalts Christ preeminently and gives Him to us and us to Him eternally. That is the love of the Father. The love of the Father redefines what is real, what is real love and what is real spirituality. Number two, the love of the Father makes Him the subject of of salvation. And what I mean by subject is this. I'm sorry to pull some grammar on you, but the subject in a sentence is the person doing the verbs, right? The dog ran, so to speak. So the dog in that sentence is the subject. So what I'm saying here, the love of the father makes him, specifically the father, the subject in salvation, meaning all of salvation. Let's look at it in chapter two, beginning in verse Nine. But before, before I start reading, let me ask you this question. Who is your Savior? The, the right answer for, for most of us is, is Jesus. That's correct. Yes, but did you know that the Father is the ultimate Savior? Redemption was His idea. We have to believe that. We have to think that. There are relational consequences if you don't think that way about the Father. We can begin to think of the Father as this angry, uh, authoritarian figure in heaven, and Jesus comes meek and mild and reconciles us to the Father, this, this cruel, harsh, holy judge. There's Trinitarian consequences as well. It's like Jesus is trying to twist the Father's arm so that He can forgive us. That's not what is happening. Redemption is his idea. He is the subject in all of salvation. Let's look at it. Verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The incarnation, Jesus becoming man and being filled with all the fullness of God, that is the Father's idea. He sent Jesus. It was his plan. Even the existence of the Son, and we we don't have time to explore this, obviously, but the existence of the Son Himself, arising or proceeding or begotten of the Father, it's His idea. It is His divine energy and power and might and understanding of Himself, whereby the Son exists from all eternity. Verse 10, And you have been filled in Him who is the head and rule of all authority. The Father is the one who fills all the followers of Jesus with the fullness of God as well through union with Christ. It is the great gift of the Father to you that you would be, like Jesus, filled with the Spirit, even filled with all the fullness of God in Him because He loves you. It's not... 
something as simple or silly as a feeling in the heart of God. He does this. He wants to fill you with all of His fullness because He loves you. Stand in awe of the love of God. That in love, He would design and enact a plan to fill you with all of His fullness. It is breathtaking. Verse 11, In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And the next several things that Paul says point forward to one subject at the end of verse 12. In the powerful working of God, that signals to us that this is all done by the power of the Father. It's it's Him who is doing all these things. Because it's not Jesus specifically who is doing the circumcising of our hearts. It is in Jesus that the Father accomplishes this. The Father is the one who removes from us our broken and wicked inclination to the flesh. The Father is the one who circumcises our hearts. Look at the middle of verse 12. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, the Father is the one who accomplishes it. And He does so by means of, or through the method of, or accomplished in the circumcision of Christ, through the death of Jesus. This new spiritual circumcision that Jesus made possible by His death, that is how the Father accomplishes this work in us. It was the Father's plan all along that through the death of Jesus, He would, by His own power, put to death in you that which is opposed to Him because He loves you. He put it to death. He removed it. He accomplished the spiritual circumcision that you can't do done without hands, because He loves you. Having been buried with Him, with Jesus, in baptism. See, Jesus didn't bury you with Himself. The Father buries you with Christ. In love, the Father has buried you. Does that sound very loving to you? I might have to stop preparing my sermons in public at coffee shops because when I think about these realities, I can't keep my composure. This is perhaps one of the most loving things that He has ever done for you. How in the world does God cast away your sins? He can't forget anything. He has infinite, perfect knowledge. Perfect memory. He doesn't forget anything. How can He make it so that your sin doesn't stand between you and Him? He buries you in Christ. When He thinks of you, He sees you as already having died for your sins in the death of Jesus. By the powerful working of God, you were buried. You see the effect that that has on your heart and your view of the Father, there is nothing that stands in between you and Him because He has buried you with Christ. Symbolized, of course, in baptism. Your sin and mine would never be in the way of the love of, of His love for you and me. In love, He buried you with Christ. First, the second half of verse 12 here. In which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. The rite of baptism also shows that we don't stay dead. The Father does not merely think of us as dead in Christ. In love, He is not satisfied just to consider us as 
uh, as our sin being gone in some legal sense, the problem fixed, you know, the books balanced in some way. Through faith, the Father raises us up with Christ. It's something that has already happened. He's not talking about our personal resurrection one day. He's saying in, in the power of God, you have already been raised with Christ. He loves us. And He has committed Himself to connect you to all the life of God in the person of His Son forever. The last part of verse 12. Who raised us from the dead. This is a very... uh, Raised Him from the dead, sorry. This is a very simple statement, but it encompasses everything. And this is why the Father is your Savior. And why He is the main subject of salvation. Put very simply, it is because the Father raised Jesus from the dead. He is the one who accomplishes it all. The Father Himself provides the Lamb. The Father Himself arranges the wood and the nails and the Romans and the rulers. And the Father crushes the Son. The Father Himself did it all. Had He stopped there, it would be a horribly wicked story. But it was the Father Himself who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. You see the point? It is God the Father who is making you alive together with Christ. It becomes even more clear that He's talking about the Father as the main subject all this time. Through faith in Christ, the Father Himself gives you... uh, I'm sorry. Through faith in Christ, which the Father Himself gives you as a gift, you can see that in Ephesians 2, the Father makes you alive in Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, it becomes even more clear now who can, who's the only one who can forgive sins? It is the Father. The Father is the one who authorizes Jesus to forgive sins. This is alluded to in Matthew 9. We don't have time or else we would read it. But it's also symbolized in Jesus' prayer. Even from the cross, He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Father is the one who has forgiven you. It isn't Jesus twisting His arm or pleading with you necessarily in a sense that there's some uh, distance between the heart of the Father for you and the heart of Jesus for you. God the Father is the one who forgives. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's not just the relational or cosmic aspects of your sin that Jesus deals with, that the Father forgives you of. All the debt and legality of your sin as well is dealt with by the Father. All of its legal demands. Why, O Christian, are you still trying to relate to God as if He deals with you according to your sins and according to the law? This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He did not sweep it under the rug. He didn't just forgive out of thin air. God did not cheat or rewrite the script of history. He didn't go back in time to save the day. 
He took it, your record of debt, the record of sins, your rap sheet, so to speak, and he nailed it to the cross. What was nailed to the cross? The body of Jesus. God in love through his powerful working on the basis of faith and the principles of his righteousness made him to be your sin and mine. Only the Father can do that. Where in the body of Jesus, hanged on the tree, nailed to the tree, God is nailing your record of debt. It's not just the physical body of Jesus in that moment. It is all of your rap sheet there, nailed to the cross. Who drove the nails? There are several right answers. The Romans, whoever that Roman soldier was, or maybe it was multiple. The rulers, the Jewish rulers, like they're, they're guilty. They're, they put him to death even though they weren't the executioner. Pilate, even though he tries to wash his hands, he's guilty. And we even sing, mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails. That's true too. But understand this, the Father is the one who in the most ultimate and important sense drove the nails in. This he set aside. Look at it. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The Father is the one canceling that record of debt by nailing, ensuring through his providential ordination of human history that Jesus would die for you. He nailed your sin and mine to the cross in the body of Jesus. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. It was not only our sins that were the problem. Because of our sin, our personal rebellion against God, we had sold ourselves in servitude to the most terrible and most malicious tyrant imaginable. And we did so willingly. But the Father, because He loves you, has fully disarmed the powers of darkness that ferociously and damningly held you captive. And, middle of verse 15, and put them to open shame. Not only did he defeat them, it wasn't like a, a chess match where it was just a, on a technicality or TKO. Not only did he defeat them and disarm them, he shamed them. Why should we delight in that? That God shames, puts them to open shame, these dark powers that held us captive? Did you not sense in the psalm that we read earlier to begin the service that there, there is a sense of outcry for the righteous, those who have been trusting in God? Why does the wicked prosper? You can read this again in Psalm 73. Why do the wicked, by their wickedness, seem to do so well? But God, the Father in the cross, has put to open shame all of his opponents. By triumphing over them in him. It was not by a military conquest or political power or a great cataclysm like there will be at the end of the age. No, the death of Jesus, what would have been seen by the townspeople and the Romans as just another crucifixion, 
It was just a normal Friday for them. Maybe with a few more people in town for Passover, but oh, here's the next execution. That event, God nailing your record of debt and my record of debt to the tree in the body of Jesus was his triumph over the powers of darkness. And here's the main point and why we went through all of that. All of that. We need to make a connection with God's love here. Even though his love isn't mentioned in any of things, these things that he did, this is what Paul is saying. He loves you. He did all this for you when you were his enemy. He sent Jesus. Incarnation was his idea. He provided a substitute. He paid for your sins. He nailed it to the tree. He triumphed over your enemies in him. God the Father is the one who does all of these things and more with the primary goal of manifesting his love. This is how John says it in John 4, 8 through 10. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of the Father was made manifest or was shown, was proven, was demonstrated among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live in Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We really, really, really need to be correct in our minds on this point. The Father does not love us because Jesus came to die for us and took away God's wrath. The Father Himself sent the Son to take away His holy and just wrath because He loves us. You must see that. And this is a vantage point into the mind and the heart of God that takes a lot of faith and a lot of mental acuity and attention to really see. But once you see it, It is as amazing as it is terrifying. The love of the Father is seen and actualized in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and uniting you to all of that in Him. The third thing we should see from Colossians about the love of the Father from chapter 3, verse 12, the verse we talked about, is that it is first and free. The love of the Father is first and free. I'll read the text again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, he just throws in this idea of of being beloved in there as, as a parenthesis. It's not an explicit statement. It doesn't contain, at first glance, at least a ton of information about the love of God. But let's really consider what he's saying. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's not changing the subject, though, by saying holy and beloved. He's not saying something like this. Chosen by the Father, holy and beloved by Jesus, or loved by me, or loved by each other. It's not what he's saying. Here's a way to translate it. Something like this. Put on then as God's chosen ones set apart by God in love. Or to make it even more clear, the ones God chose to set apart because of his love. 
That'd be a more literal rendering of what is being said here. Here's how Douglas Moo in his commentary on Colossians put it, puts it. God's love for his people is often featured in the Old Testament. Sometimes as a response to the people's obedience, as you see in Deuteronomy 5.10. But often also as the fundamental basis for God's election of his people. You can see this in Deuteronomy 4.37, Deuteronomy 10.15, Psalm 78.68, and Isaiah 41.8. Paul also brings together God's love and his election of his people. You can see this in 1 Thessalonians 1. Verse 4, which we'll get to. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. In this verse, then, this is, this is Douglas continu- continuing, Dr. Moo continuing. In this verse, then, as wholly designates the result of God's election, or being set apart is the result of God's election, so dearly loved or beloved may suggest its basis. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This will be familiar to some of you. If it's not, it should be. It's one of the most breathtaking descriptions of God's love. It lets us see into his heart. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than they, uh, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. God explicitly says in this statement that the reason he has placed his affection on them and set them apart is because he loves them. I want to say a few words and have real talk, so to speak, about this idea of God choosing us. I know that for some of you that may make you uncomfortable, and that's okay. And I don't pretend to have the time this morning to untangle all the issues of the relationship between God's sovereignty and your responsibility and our will and the extent of the atonement. Those are all important and difficult issues and questions, and anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. But I want you to understand today that we are talking about the love of the Father for you. His special and indomitable and eternal love that He has placed on you of His own free will in Jesus Christ, His Son. So set aside all those philosophical questions and discussing rights and justice and freedom and just sit there, O son or daughter of God. And bask in the glory that the Almighty, God the Father, has chosen to love you. That's what this text is saying in Colossians. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Chosen to be holy, chosen because you're loved. Just sit in that. Rejoice in it. The great I am did not choose you because you are impressive. Praise be to God. 
the majestic one, did not choose you because he looked into the future and saw that you would be a good boy or a good girl and that you would get your act together unlike all the rest of the people. He chose you because he loves you. That's what it's saying. And what is the real life use and helpfulness of this idea? It's almost uh, defaming the, uh, the glory of this idea to ask, what, how can this be useful? But we must not be mistaken on this point. On the one hand, the Father sent Jesus to die for us, not to authorize Himself to love us, but because He had chosen to love us from before all time. Let me say that again because I really want that to hit you like a ton of bricks. He sent Jesus to die for us, not to authorize Himself to love us, but because He had chosen to love us from before all time. On the other hand, we must not think that He had to love us simply because He is a loving God. That cheapens His love. I really want you to get this. God ordained a situation in which He had no reason to love us, even though He's a loving God. He would have been just as loving, just as holy, just consistent with His nature to damn every single one of us. You violate the gospel and you violate His love for you and you can't rest in the treasure that it is to be loved by the Father if you say otherwise. Because of our sin, which is what we bring to the table, He had every reason to have nothing but wrath towards us forever. But because of His breathtakingly free will, in all the brute power of His self-determination, He chose to love us. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 Don't you see the most radical act of freedom imaginable in all human history, in all the universe, of any conceivable world is that God chose to love you. How do we know if His special and unfathomably vast electing love rests on us? Here's how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, chosen by God, that He has chosen you, or loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Do you believe the gospel? Are you convicted to live a holy life? Do you find joy in Christ? Then rejoice greatly, O sons and daughters of Zion. You are loved with the very same love with which the Father loves the Son. And He set that love and favor and grace on you because He loves you. And the beauty and mystery is this. Even if you do not know the Lord and do not believe in the gospel... If you will but believe in the Lord Jesus, then all of this special love is yours too. As I said, that's, that's a mystery. And if you give me two to ten hours, depending on how many questions you have, I can work that out with you. But just rest in that. If you will but believe in Jesus Christ, then all of that love is yours as well. 
And I'm not trying to make you agree 100% with everything that I think and feel on these things, but I love you, and I want you to have the security and joy that can be yours by resting in God's love for you. He chose you. He did the impossible and scandalous thing in setting his affection on you. And it cost him the life of his son to follow through on it. Because he loves you. So four things, four ways. Ways that we can stand in awe and celebrate the love of the Father. Number one, the love of the Father is the ground of all rejoicing. It is the ground of all rejoicing. This is indeed one of the main points of this section. If you begin in verse 12 and go through to verse 17, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and then he goes through all the things that we're supposed to put on. One of the themes, the main theme, is this theme of gratitude or thankfulness. We can rejoice and be glad. Consider how this idea, this truth of being loved by the Father can hold your soul together when everything else in your life is making it break apart. The reason we can have gratitude, the reason we can have rejoicing, the reason we can have a celebration Sunday is because of what God has done. And because He did it all for us, In Christ, because of his love for us. No one was twisting his arm. We were not so utterly pitiful or lovely that the Son and the Spirit had to do it for us. They weren't there in a a heavenly meeting trying to persuade the Father to send the Son and to redeem us and forgive us. It was his idea. Rejoice and celebrate. God has set his love on me and you and all those who are in Christ Jesus. Number two, the love of the Father is the neglected power over sin. The love of the Father is the neglected power over sin. This is why, or this is what, is so missing or lacking in our hearts as the key and motive for holiness and sufficiency for zeal. It's because you don't see the love of God. Or you don't treasure it. And you're distracted by 10,000 other things. You don't treasure and revel in the love of God for you. And so you have no power over your flesh. We do not walk in awareness of the vastness of the love of the Father. We do not sense the magnitude of His desire to prove His love. We do not tremble at His relentless passion to bring His love to fruition in our salvation. We do not see the glory of His love because we have defined it in worldly and simple or silly ways or we just neglect it altogether and we're more fascinated by other things. Your favorite show, your favorite team, your favorite hobby, your favorite food your favorite pastime, your goals in life, your career, whatever it is. You're fascinated by other things and we're not looking at the glory of the love of the Father for you in Christ. Dear Christian, delve deep into the awesome wonder of the love of the Father for you if you dare. To peer into that love deeper than the abyss and higher than even heaven 
is the intersection of all fear and affection. All wonder and amazement and terror are found there that this being of all power and all glory and holiness has chosen to love you. And in that moment of awe and wonder and amazement, the root of sin, the mighty oak of pride, and the power of the flesh is destroyed in a moment. Number three, the love of the Father and the Word of Christ are related. The love of the Father and the Word of Christ are related. Put simply, this is the central exhortation. This is what we're, why we've come to this text in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. What we lack isn't necessarily a deeper understanding of the Word of Christ. Most of us are aware of what the Gospel is, though I think we can get better in that way. What we lack most of the time is a zeal or desire to make it dwell in us richly. We just leave it to other people. Hopefully other people will be zealous for the word of Christ and kind of make it dwell in us richly. I'll show up. I'll do the things and check them off my list. But who will stand and cause and massage the word of Christ into our community so that it dwells in us richly? The reason we lack that zeal is because we don't understand the connection between the word of Christ and the love of the Father. Put simply, the word of Christ does not appeal to the heart that does not stand in awe of the love of God. The word of Christ, the gospel, does not appeal to the heart that does not stand in awe of the love of God. The word of Christ, the gospel, must not be a matter of doctrine only. It must be like... uh, your life, it, it can't be like a, a seat belt or an insurance policy or the Declaration of Independence, just kind of out there, it's fixed and secure, it's done. Where there is a lack of zeal for the word of Christ, the gospel, it is because we do not walk in an awareness of the magnitude of the love of God. But if you see the unfathomably deep, startlingly ferocious gloriously holy love of God, the Father Himself, then you will drink deeply of the Gospel every day. And you will make sure it dwells in your brothers and sisters richly as well. You understand the treasure of God's love and how that is, how a person is united to all of that through the Gospel. Why would we make any other thing primary? Lastly, number four, the love of the Father is the ground of our hope. The love of the Father gives us assurance. How can we be confident today, knowing that even later on today or tomorrow we can get a phone call and your life can be proverbially ruined? None of you are immune from that can happen to any of us. And what can give us the confidence and assurance to face millions and billions and trillions of years into eternity? Is your soul even sturdy enough for that? doesn't matter how good it is. I, I don't know if I can be stretched that far. But God loves us. So it doesn't matter. We can have confidence for tomorrow against any tragedy 
And we can have confidence looking into the terrifying prospect of eternity because the Father Himself loves you. And He will ensure that no matter what happens here, and no matter how long it will be in eternity, He will ensure it will be for your best and highest good. And this is why we celebrate the Lord's table. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, you do this in remembrance of the Lord until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's table represents for us the tangible ground of our hope that in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, we have proof undeniable proof that the Father Himself loves you. I want you to see this in Luke 22. This echoes what we saw in chapter 2 of Colossians. Luke chapter 2, picking it up, uh, chapter 22 rather, picking it up in verse 14. Luke 22 Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, This, take this and divide it among yourselves for. I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now pay attention to this. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after he had eaten, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Poured out for you? We just read that it is the Father who nailed Jesus to the cross. The Father is the one who sets the table. The Father, because He loves you, has ensured that Christ's body would be broken and His blood would be shed on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins and life eternal. Let's pray. Father, I pray that those who know that you love them would rejoice and that you would give us energy and zeal more than we've had maybe in a long, long time for holiness and for Christian living because you love us. Help us reflect on the truth that is expressed in the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.